0: I just want us to turn our attention to God's word. And really what I want us to do, I just want us to dive headlong into the word of God this morning. Because I believe God has a very important message for us as God's church. Something that he wants to speak into our hearts and our lives and something he wants to challenge us with. If you were here last Sunday morning, I shared with you three of the passions that I have or that God has given me in ministry. One of those I spoke about last Sunday morning. I spoke about discipleship, and one of the great desires of my heart is to help men and women become all that they can be in Christ Jesus their Lord. I want to come alongside them and encourage them and be one of your biggest cheerleaders as you seek to live your life for Christ. Another one of my passions is the gospel. I love to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. I want people to understand what God's purpose is for their life, that God loves them, and more than anything else, he desires for them to have a relationship with him through Christ Jesus the Lord. My third passion that I shared with you last Sunday morning is the church. I love God's church. And my desire as a pastor is to lead this body of believers here at Crestwood to to be in position to, to to make an impact for God's kingdom. That is the desire of my heart. So over the next seven weeks, what I want us to do is I've put together a series of messages, a series of sermons that I have simply entitled the church. Now some of you are going to hear these messages and for some of you it's going to be nothing different, nothing new. But for some of us what I hope it will do is challenge our understanding and ideas about God's church to really see if what we believe about God's church is rooted and grounded in scripture. Because if anyone has the right to speak about God's church it's Jesus Christ himself. And the reason I say that is because Christ is the one who died for the church. So this morning I want us to start with this question. The question that I want to ask you today is this. When you hear the word church, what is the first word that pops into your mind? Now that may be different for a lot of us. Some of us hear the word church, and maybe the first thing that pops into our mind, the first word, may be worship. Others may think about God's word, the Bible. Some people may think about people, or some people may think about a family. Now, I don't know how many of you are like me, but when I hear the word church, the first word that pops into my mind is building a structure. And the reason that is, is I have been conditioned to think that way. I've been conditioned by my mother. She's a great woman of God. But I can remember as a child growing up, the words of my mother. Now, children, don't forget, we're going to church in the morning. Hey, children, don't forget on Wednesday night, we have potluck down at the church house. Have any of you ever heard those statements in your life? Now, it was years before I really began to fully understand what the church really was. So what is the church? Well, I think if we're going to understand the answer to that question, we need to go to the Word of God. And the very first time we find the word church in the Word of God is spoken by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the 16th chapter. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus Christ looked at his apostles and he made this statement I will build my church. When I hear that statement, there are several truths that just really jump out at me about Jesus Christ's church. And the one that really holds or comes to the forefront for me is this. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus is the owner of the church. He is the head of the church. Jesus didn't say, I will build the missionary's church. And he didn't say, I would build the pastor's church. And he didn't say, I would build the deacon's church or even the member's church. Jesus made it very clear when he said, I will build my church jesus christ is the head of the church he is the owner of the church now if that is true this morning then only jesus christ has the right to tell us what the church is and isn't we don't get a voice in that do we we can't go to jesus christ and tell him what his church should be or shouldn't be no It is simply our responsibility to discover what the church should be, but only Jesus Christ has the right to determine what the church is, because he is the owner of the church. So this morning, what I want you to do is to open your Bibles to Acts, the second chapter, because perhaps nowhere in Scripture do we find a clearer picture of God's Church. Acts, the second chapter, if you would, this morning, please. Acts, the second chapter. And in just a few moments, we're going to be reading this passage of Scripture. But as you're turning your Bibles there, I want to give you a little bit of the background of the book of Acts. I like to think of Acts as a continuation of the story. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. And if you know anything about Luke, Luke was also the writer of the Gospel of Luke. This is his continuation of the story. And what Luke wants to do in the book of Acts is several different things for us. First, he wants to see or he wants to show us the continuation of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world. The second thing is he wants to teach us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing that he wants to do in the book of Acts is he wants to record for us, allow us to look inside and see the early church, its birth and its formation is what his desire is. Now you need to understand something about Luke. Luke was a doctor, but not only was he a doctor, he was a historian. And that side of him heavily influenced his writings. So you know what Luke does in the book of Acts? Every two or three chapters, Luke stops. And he gives us a report on the status of the work. He wants us to understand what is going on, how things are progressing with the movement of Christianity throughout the world. So, here in Acts, the second chapter, Luke records for us the facts concerning the early church. It's actually his first report that is found here in the book of Acts. I want you to hear the words of Luke this morning as we begin to read in verse 37. Verse 37. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship of the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing those proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Perhaps no passage of Scripture in all of God's Word gives us a better description of what the church is. Did you hear the words of Luke in this passage of Scripture? In this passage of Scripture, Luke stacks on top of one another one characteristic after another. He paints this beautiful picture of what is the church. And the very first thing that I noticed that Luke says about this early group of believers here, the first thing that I noticed, he said they were a believing people. I like to say it like this. I know this is not correct English, but they were a faithing people. They were a group of people who had placed their trust in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Luke said here in verse 41? Listen to what Luke says in this verse. He says here in verse 41, so those who received his word. Now that's a reference to Peter. It's a reference to what Peter had just preached at Pentecost, or on the day of Pentecost, in the temple courts. Peter had preached this great gospel message. He had shared with them who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus Christ had done for them. And to those who received that word, to those who placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it say? They were baptized that day and they were added to their number. So the very first characteristic that I see of God's church is this. God's church is a faith thing. They are a believing people. They don't just believe anything, though, do they? There were many different religious groups at this day and time. This was not the only religious group in the first century. No, they had trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so what does Luke do? Now he's going to show us what distinguishes them as a believing people. He's going to help us to understand what are the characteristics of someone who has truly placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first he says they were a convicted people. Listen to what he says in verse 37 of this passage of Scripture. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to their hearts. Some of your Bibles may say they were pricked. In their hearts. One translation that I read this week said that they were deeply moved in their hearts. This word here, to cut, actually means to penetrate with a sharp needle or an object. How many of you have ever pricked your finger with a needle? If you remember the intense pain that, go, that happens when you prick your finger with a needle? Now, think about it for a moment. What happens the next day when you touch anything with the tip of that finger? There's always this intense pain, isn't there? Actually, this word here, to cut, means or speaks of intense pain. Now, we have a good old-fashioned theological word for this. It's called conviction. They had heard this message that Peter preached, this gospel message that he had preached about Jesus Christ. And when they had heard this message preached, they were pricked in their hearts. They were convicted of the lives that they lived. They realized that they had failed to live up to God's moral standard. They were convicted. They had been confronted in their sins. Let me say something to you this morning. A gospel that doesn't confront people in their sins is an incomplete gospel. It is a missing element if the gospel doesn't prick a person's conscience. On more than one occasion in my time in the ministry, I've heard people say to me, I don't like people who are confrontational with the gospel. There's only one problem with that statement. The gospel in its very nature is confrontational. Anytime you confront people in their sins and you challenge them to change their lives for their lives to be radically changed, it is confrontational. These people here, these Jewish people, their hearts had been pricked, their conscience had been pricked by the gospel message that Peter had preached. And as a result of that, they were convicted in their hearts. But not only were they just a convicted people, I noticed something else about this. I noticed also that they were a desperate people. I want you to go back to verse 37 in this passage of Scripture, and I want you to hear what it is that Luke says in this passage of Scripture. He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It's almost as though when I hear that question, I can hear their cry of desperation. These people had been confronted in their sin, and as a result of that, they were desperate. As a child growing up in America, or living in America most of my life, I never fully understood what it was to see someone who was truly desperate until we moved to Zambia. On more than one occasion when my wife and I and our family lived in Zambia, I looked into the eyes of someone who understood desperation. As I was sitting in my office preparing this sermon this past week, God brought to my mind one of those particular situations. When we lived in Mongu in Zambia and we were doing language study, there is a woman who would come to our home about every three or four months. She always had a baby strapped on her back and she was leading the other two children by her arm, I mean by their hands. Later on, I would learn that she had four more children at home and that her husband was a drunkard. The very first time she ever knocked on our, great, our gate in, in Mongu, uh, Zambia, I went out to open the gate. And when I went to the gate, I remember opening the gate and looking outdoors or outside our gate there and seeing this woman. Her clothes were threadbare. And her children, really, the clothes they had on were almost non existent. And when she looked up into my eyes, I began to understand what true desperation was. I began to see a woman whose heart was filled full of hurt and pain. She was in despair. She had no idea from which her next meal for her children or herself would come. If you can imagine that picture in your mind for a moment, you began to understand how desperate these people were. Now, they weren't physically desperate like that woman. They were spiritually desperate. Peter had preached this great gospel message. Their conscience had been pricked. And as a result of that, they were desperate. Their hearts were broken over their sinfulness. And they cried out to Peter and the other apostles that were gathered there. And they said to them, what shall we do? Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you were truly spiritually desperate? Where you were really broken over your sinfulness? In this passage of Scripture, these Jewish people who heard the message of Peter on this day, they were desperate. They were a convicted people, and they were a desperate people. But not only were they a convicted and desperate people, but I want you to notice something else about this group of people. They were a saved people. They were a saved People. I want you to go back to this text with me again and listen to what it is that Luke says in this passage of Scripture. He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. They were a convicted people. They had been confronted in their sins. God's Holy Spirit had pricked their heart. They knew that they stood guilty before the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, they were desperate. They cried out to the apostles, and they said, What shall we do? And Peter looks at them, and he says to them, This is what you need to do. First, you need to repent, is what Peter said in this passage of Scripture. Now, some people would have us to believe today that repentance is not necessary for salvation. They would say the only thing that you need to do is just to simply believe. But I would tell you they're wrong. As a matter of fact, I would tell you if that is true, Peter completely botched the gospel message in this passage of Scripture. Because what does Peter say? Peter looks at these people and he says, this is the only way you're going to get relief for your sinfulness. You need to repent of your sins. It's what Peter says in this passage of Scripture. Now, some people will say, well, Brother Jeff, I never see the word faith in this passage of Scripture. What about faith? Well, repentance and faith are the opposite sides of the same coin. There can be no genuine salvation without, true, without a true repentant faith. That word repent is a rich word in its meaning. It means much more than just to change our mind about who Jesus Christ is. Actually, this word repent means not only to just change our mind about who Jesus is, it also means to change, how, or change our understanding of how our sin affects Jesus Christ. Or I mean, or excuse me one moment. Let me start over again. Repentance is, this word means not only to change our mind about who Jesus Christ is, it also means to change how our our understanding of how our sin affects God and as a result of that there is a change in the direction of our lives if you're here this morning and you can tell me today that you've trusted Jesus Christ but there's never been a change in your life then I would tell you you need to really stop and examine your heart this morning Without true, genuine repentance, there can be no salvation. That's the reason Paul wrote and said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus the Lord, he is a new creation. He is speaking of the union that takes place when a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when they trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their desires, their hearts, their actions, their attitude, all of that changes. That changes. Now, it doesn't mean that we live a perfect life, but if there's never been any change of direction in your life, you need to really stop and ask yourself the challenging question, do I really know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Do I really know Him? We have a word for that that's actually found in the New Testament. It's called regeneration. The word regeneration implies something that is made new, that's brought back to life. Paul looked, I'm sorry, Peter looked at this group of Jewish people that had gathered to hear his sermon, and he said, if you want relief in your life, this is what you need to do. You need to repent, is what he said. But not only does he just tell them that he needs to repent, he goes on in this passage of Scripture, and he says, you also need to be baptized. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to be very careful in this passage of Scripture that we don't misunderstand what it is that Peter is saying here. It would be easy for us to take this passage of Scripture out of context and make it seem as though Peter is teaching that in order for a person to be saved, they have to be baptized. But there's only one problem with that. That completely contradicts what we find in other places in God's Word. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians, the second chapter, in verses 8 and 9, that we have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that any man should boast. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand here, because I want you to understand something very important. Baptism is important in the life of the believer. It does have spiritual significance for the person who has chosen to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is through baptism that we publicly identify with Christ. It is we saying that we are committed to following Jesus Christ in this life. Paul comes here and he challenges these people to make a radical decision in their life, to break with the cultural norms of their day and time, the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture. If you remember, it was this very people right here that just several months before was calling for Jesus Christ to be crucified. And now Peter is saying, you need to come and you need to identify with Christ in a public way. I want you to listen what happens in this passage of scripture as a result of this listen to uh, what Luke says here and he says so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls what characterizes God's church the church is characterized by believing people People who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These people, they were convicted in their hearts. They were desperate. What shall we do? And as a result of that, they were saved. Because Peter said, repent and show that you truly belong to Jesus Christ by being baptized. And Luke records for us, on that day, 3,000 were added to their numbers. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is that true of your life? I want you to hear what I didn't ask you this morning. I didn't ask you if your name was on the church roll. I didn't ask if you have been baptized, whether you go to Sunday school, whether you put money in the offering. I didn't ask you any of that. I asked you has there been a time in your life where you know for certain that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have very clearly given evidence? in your life by the fruit that you have bared do you know jesus christ as your lord and savior the bible says today is the day of salvation do you know why the bible says that because the message of salvation is urgent and none of us are guaranteed the next breath that we draw None of us knows what the rest of this day holds. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm pleading with you today, make the day, make today the day that you give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to have a hymn of invitation. I'm going to ask our instrumentalists to come. And as they come this morning, it's going to give us an opportunity to respond to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come. Now, some of you may say, well, Brother Jeff, that's so hard. Why why would I come? That's embarrassing. But do you realize in Scripture Jesus Christ never called anyone that he he didn't call publicly? If you're here this morning, I want to encourage you to come. I want to share with you how you can know for certain that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know for certain that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you've not been living in the manner in which you should live. Maybe you just need someone to pray for you, or maybe you need to come here to the altar and pray. If I can be your pastor and pray with you this morning, I would love to do that. Maybe you're here and you want to become a part of this body of believers. We would encourage that. You can come this morning and express that to me, and we would love to have you join this fellowship. I encourage you to respond in whatever manner that God desires for you to respond today. Father God, we thank you for your word and the way you've spoken to our hearts. Lord, your word is true. And Lord, as we look at the lives of this early church, what characterized their life, they were a believing people of people who had placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in the hearts and the lives of us tonight, I mean us this morning. Lord, I pray that people would respond in the manner in which you desire for them to respond, to your honor and to your glory. I pray this in Christ Jesus' name, amen.